Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and tonight we're going way into the deep end. We're recounting the epic story of the first effective combat submarine in human history. It's a story that rivals the Wright brothers' first flight. It's a city bombarded for over 600 days. A city literally raked over with gunfire. It's a blockade and a desperate gamble. It's the H.L. Hundley. But first, I want to thank Wes from Brisbane, Australia, and Lane from Kalispell, Montana, for buying us around tonight. I also have to give a very special thanks to Ben, who broke the bank and bought us a brand new Shure microphone and Behringer mixer. You guys should see this microphone I'm using. This thing is actually physically heavy. I could bludgeon you with this mic and record a podcast the same night. You know, I'll do this podcast with two plastic cups and a string if I have to, and I'm glad to have anyone listen to this show, but when people like Ben and Charlie and Wes and Lane help me fill up my gas tank or set up a studio, I'm just super, super grateful, guys. I don't know what else to say. Thank you. And if you'd like to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the donate button. Now let's crack open a few cold ones. Okay, today we're drinking I'm on a Boat Golden Ale by the great people at Monday Night Brewing. This Pilsner is brewed with wheat and comes in at 4.8% ABV. I'm giving it four bullets out of five. But now we're diving so deep into the deep end, we won't come up for an hour. It's time for the Hunley. On January 1st, 1864, the odds of the South winning the Civil War were dismal at best. Foreign intervention looked less likely than ever. Each of the Confederacy's principal armies had suffered defeat on the battlefield in 1863. Desertions were up. The South was steadily losing territory to the North. Lee marched North and suffered one of his only major defeats at Gettysburg. General Braxton Bragg won an important victory at Chickamauga in September, but then suffered a terrible defeat at Chattanooga two months later. Vicksburg, the last Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River, had fallen on July 4th. Now the Western Confederate states were cut off from the political center at Richmond. Inflation turned Confederate money into little more than kindling for fires. And for the last months of 1863, Jefferson Davis and the leadership of the Confederate States of America were like a man who finds out he has cancer and each doctor visit, the cancer grows. The situation maps told the story like cancerous x-rays. The maps didn't lie. It was like reading scripture. Anyone could look at the maps and see the situation was sliding into defeat. But when confronted by defeat, the strong don't give up. They fight on. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And one of those desperate measures was the first submarine to effectively engage an enemy in human history, the H.L. Hunley. Now, the Hunley wasn't the first submarine ever built, so you can go ahead and take your finger off that email send button. Even during the Revolutionary War, there had been prototypes designed and some had even been built. But the Hunley was the first submarine to make it all come together. Propulsion, total submersion, seeking and destroying the enemy. It was the Hunley that proved submarine warfare could be effective, but that proof came at a terrible price. Scores of men died, making the Hunley seaworthy. The crews who manned her literally sat in the seats where their predecessors had died. No one had any illusions. To man the Hunley was to dance with death. And it all began in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1862, the largest city in the South at that time. 
and it started with another boat, the Pioneer. She was the first Confederate submarine and was 34 feet long. Eyewitnesses said she looked like a porpoise. She was very much a prototype. There were problems with steering her. There were problems with her buoyancy. But the main thing was there. She navigated underwater and came back up to tell the tale. It proved it was possible. But now the Yankees were closing in on New Orleans, and the men who had designed, built, and operated the Pioneer had to destroy their dream. In the blazing southern heat, the men opened the hatch and let the murky water overflow into the hull. The machine had no ballast, and so she slowly sank. But the men who had built her lived to fight another day and to make another submarine. And one of the key men who had forged the Pioneer from nothing was Horace Lawson Hunley. Now, Hunley was a privateer, a captain of an armed ship manned by private individuals who are commissioned by a government to engage in warfare with hostile forces. Think of Hunley as a Confederate Han Solo. For most of the classic Star Wars films, Han is not an actual soldier of the Rebellion, but he often fights for the Rebellion nonetheless. Hunley worked in the same way. At 37, Hunley was a lawyer, former state lawmaker, and plantation owner, a man of considerable wealth from a well-to-do family, but not filthy rich. Brian Hicks provides this description of the man's character, quote, Behind piercing dark eyes and a thick black beard, Hunley was driven by a hungry ambition to leave his mark on history. In a tiny ledger he kept in his pocket, Hunley wrote inspirational quotations meant to push him harder. Like, for instance, procrastination is the thief of time and attend to that which is most important and do not neglect business or duty, end quote. In his calendar, Hunley kept his days planned to the hour, forcing himself to work when he didn't want to, calculating interests, building wealth, and serving his family dutifully. He also took a keen interest in the lives of great men, seeking to emulate their success. He was right to do this. The history of successful people is a roadmap. You can implement their practices in your own life and make your own life better. Who are your heroes? Who do you want to emulate? Ask yourself these questions and you'll see where your heart truly lies. You'll learn a lot about yourself. You really will. And Hunley learned a lot too. His business grew and then the war came. This was his chance. He threw himself as a private individual into the war, spending his own money on inventions like Doc Brown and Back to the Future. This was his chance to make history. In June of 1861, he was already breaking the blockade by making short dashes to Cuba and back for essential supplies. I want to stop right there and lay some truth on some of you right-wing extremists. Oswald Spangler once famously said, No country is an island. From the start of the war, the South constantly interacted with and sought necessary supplies from other nations. The same is true for the Boer Republics in the Boer War, who sought supplies from Portugal. The point I'm trying to make is trade and dealing with other nations is a necessity. The coffee you drink every day came from another country. The fresh fruit you absentmindedly put in your mouth every day came from another country. The phone and the computer you are listening to this podcast podcast on has essential parts that are only sourced from other countries. We are linked with these people and they are linked to us for this reason, if no other. We should treat other nations the way we want to be treated. It doesn't mean we have to suck up to them or fawn over them. They're neither sacred nor evil. We don't look up to them, but we don't look down at them either. We should look other nations like other people in the eye, accept our differences and move forward. I didn't say we have to celebrate our differences. We only have to accept them and engage each other in ways that mutually benefit and respect one another. The case study of the South and her dependence on foreign nations for arms and supplies demonstrates the need for nations to moderate 
extreme nationalist opinions. I could list a host of case studies, but there's no need. So all of you right-wingers out there, I'm not telling you to love foreigners or to hate foreigners. I'm telling you to accept them, accept that they exist, and move forward. That's not the view from the right, and it's not the view from the left. It's the view from above. Anyway, in the summer of 1861, Hundley formed a new business partnership with James McClintock, who owned a machine shop and had a talent for invention. They would build the first working submarine or die trying. True, others had tried, but theirs would be the first to succeed. They were right. The first submarine they built was made out of an old iron boiler, a quarter of an inch thick. It was 34 feet long, 4 feet wide, and 4 feet tall. It carried a crew of three men, two of whom sat facing each other while cranking a handle to turn the screw propeller. It had one hatch atop a conning tower where the captain stood and steered with ropes attached to the rudder. It had diving fins to make it submerge and resurface, and when the fins pointed down, oncoming water drove the submarine deeper into the water, and when the fins pointed up, water flowing beneath them lifted them up. The same principles led the Wright brothers to invent the first airplane a few decades later. We've got diagrams and pictures up on the website. They named the sub the Pioneer. That's when the test began. Brian Hicks explains the first baby steps of mankind's dive into the inky vastness of water. Quote, in February 1862, the early tests began outside New Orleans on Lake Pachatron, a huge but relatively shallow body of windswept water that is often as rough as open sea, Pioneer dove and resurfaced successfully but was wobbly in the process. But the principles worked. They could do it. The Confederate government issued a license for the Pioneer to engage in warfare. The tests were proceeding apace, end quote. And then the bottom dropped out. The defenses at New Orleans failed. Through no fault of their own, the designers of the sub had to abandon her. Here is man's fate. We are always linked to the actions of others. Clearly, this shows the value of choosing your acquaintances and your fellow citizens carefully. Hunley and McClintock had to scuttle their invention. Then the men headed east to Mobile, Alabama. They would start all over again, but this time their machine would be a killer. In May 1862, after reporting to Confederate authorities in Mobile, Alabama, Hunley and McClintock walked into the machine shop of Thomas Park and Thomas Leon in downtown Mobile. There, the men worked day and night like mad scientists to build their secret weapon. The Confederate Army supplied soldiers to aid the men as they worked. Two of these soldiers were William Alexander and George Dixon. As they eagerly helped around the shop, they could never have known that they only had two years left to live. They joked and laughed as they helped to build their own casket. They called the thing a submarine. Its name was the American Diver. McClintock had meticulously noted every flaw on the Pioneer, and he engineered them out in the American Diver. The Pioneer dived slow, so McClintock added ballast tanks. The old sub was too slow in the water, so McClintock made it sleeker, designing it so it could move swiftly in the water like a fish. The new sub was 36 feet long and made out of an old iron boiler. This wasn't ideal, but raw materials were already stretched thin in the South at the time. The sub had a screw propeller, and diving fins. Two hatches were built on the top of its four feet tall hole. I want you to think about that size, four feet by 36 feet and three feet wide. Even the shortest men would need to duck walk in this machine. It's tight like a coffin. It even looks like an elongated coffin. There are pictures up on the website. 
In Mobile, Hundley financed it all, spending hundreds of dollars of his own money at a time when hundreds of dollars was worth tens of thousands in today's money. The machine was powered by a hand crank. The four crewmen lined the wall of the sub. They sat on little uncomfortable ledges, the way fat guys sit in their daughter's kindergarten classroom chairs. Each man grabbed the hand crank with two hands and pushed it in a circular motion, which is a lot like the rowing machines at a gym. For light, the sub relied on one candle. In the back, you were working in essentially pitch blackness. The test went great, though. The sub was still slow, but it ran at a constant two knots. The diver was designed to drag a mine at the end of its long tow line and dive underneath its prey, guiding the mine along the surface. And when the mine touched the enemy ship, the charge would detonate, cutting the Yankee ship's hull in half. Meanwhile, the Confederate soldiers would be snickering to themselves from the safety of 100 feet away. It was a decent enough plan for the time, but it would have had serious, and it did have serious repercussions later. The men from the machine shop served as the crew for their own machines in order to promote secrecy about the project. That's how William Alexander and George Dixon had their fate intertwined with the Hunley. It was Dixon who showed a complete faith and fascination in the American diver. In his mid-twenties and a second lieutenant, Dixon literally limped into the machine shop carrying the wounds from the Battle of Shiloh. The bullet that was meant for his life had miraculously hit a $20 gold coin in his pocket, and the coin had shielded Dixon from a larger wound. Without that gold coin, Dixon would probably have been killed or severely handicapped for the rest of his life. Each day after Shiloh was a gift from God for Dixon. He was a man who had faced death and lived to talk about it. It was Dixon who had complete faith in the submarine. He sincerely believed it could save his nation. He put his life on the line to prove it. From the summer of 1862, the tests in Mobile Bay continued. And the problems continued, too. Dixon was six feet tall, and he had trouble moving around that three-foot-tall sub. The iron shell of the diver played hell on the compass, so it never read right. Dangerous for a ship playing to find the enemy in the blinding darkness of the sea at night. And in the early winter months of 1863, the American diver set out on her first mission. The plan was for another boat to tow the submarine into open water, whereupon the men inside the sub would begin to propel themselves. This was done in order to save the men's strength for the attack. After all, they had to hand crate the propeller in order to move the machine. Hunley and Dixon were on the boat that was dragging the American diver out to sea. Soon the Confederacy would make its first of a series of secret strikes against the Yankee blockade. Hunley and Dixon could see themselves emblazoned across the headlines. They would be the great heroes of the nation, fathers of the South's independence, leaders. But suddenly, all those great thoughts and all those great dreams were Cut off! One second they had been towing the American diver behind them, the next second it had disappeared under the inky waves. The American diver had vanished as quick as you can say abracadabra. The winter rough weather had snapped the line towing the sub, and entire years of work went down with the sub, and many delusions of grandeur went down with it. Not to mention Huntley's money. He had lost approximately $310,000 in today's money when the boat sank to the bottom of Mobile Bay. Consequently, the men decided to name the next submarine after Hunley. It would be a name that every Navy man for the rest of time would know and learn. So after losing two submersibles, the men did not give up. They set to work building a third machine, and they christened it the Hunley. A modern historian describes the ship, which was finished by July 1863, quote, The new ship cut through the water like a scythe. 
its black icebreak bow slicing the chop as if it wasn't even there. It had been built with all the lessons learned from the previous two machines. They built a skeleton for the sub and riveted iron plates onto it. Next, they sanded off the outside edges to make the hull even slicker, noting the complaints about the tight crew compartment of the American diver. They widened the Hunley to 42 and a half inches. Thick glass portholes, called deadlights, were mounted with O-rings in rows of two along the top of the hull for better lighting. Viewing ports were put into the two coning towers, and another in the forward hatch so the captain could tell when it was safe to open it. The ship was hand-cranked, but now eight men would man it. Giving it extra speed in the water, the Hunley was 40 feet long and 4 feet tall. Seven men would sit on a wooden bench along the submarine's port side, turning a crank with angled handles, which rotated the propeller shaft. The captain would stand with his head in the forward conning tower, working the dive planes and steering with a joystick-like tiller. A pine pole was fitted to the front of the ship. It would give the men a warning if they were about to run into something. Diving planes hugged the sub's tapered bow like comforting arms, and it dove and surfaced so quickly it looked like a child jumping in and out of the waves at the beach. It had been designed so hydrodynamically that even the conning towers had cut waters. In the initial test, the trailing mine had exploded on impact with a dilapidated ship blowing it apart while the crew resurfaced 100 feet away to watch the old abandoned ship sink. It had worked. They had really done it. Then the orders came from Charleston. Beauregard needed the boat fighting had escalated. The rebels couldn't hold out much longer. Nowhere was this felt more desperately than in South Carolina. The Union had a particular hatred for Charleston, where secession had begun. Dozens of blockaders were strangling the city. It was a one-sided fight. Beauregard's troops were demoralized. The general didn't give a damn that tests weren't complete. They needed the boat now, not later. He doesn't give a shit. He commanded all rail stations to ship it to Charleston to just ship it fast, and they obeyed. The Hundley came to Charleston, and so did part of her crew. And when McClintock arrived in Charleston, he was offered $100,000 to sink a Yankee blockade ship, equivalent to about $1,600,000 in today's money. But McClintock was a cautious man. For two weeks, he conducted a series of tests as the exasperated Confederate leadership looked on, begging McClintock to attack. After McClintock refused to allow Confederate Navy man aboard the ship, Beauregard simply seized his invention from him and manned it with volunteers from the city, and the volunteers were easy to come by. The northern ships had bombarded Charleston for 600 days from both land and sea. Much of the town was already destroyed. That's why the Confederates needed to break the blockade and break it fast. Lieutenant John Payne of the Confederate States Navy would be the one to do the breaking. He volunteered to captain and lead the Hunley. On August 29, 1863, the grim men set out to get revenge, grinding their teeth as they entered the Hunley. Brian Hicks tells what happened next, quote, With all his men in position, Payne was climbing in through the forward hatch when a rebel ship came steaming by. The wake of the ship rolled over the Hunley and set water pouring through the hatches into the crew compartment. In a panic, the men tried to climb over one another to get out. It was no use. The Hunley was an unforgiving machine. To keep its profile low on the waterline, the submarine was weighted heavily with lead bars bolted to the bottom of the hull. That made it susceptible to the slightest change in weight or movement in the hull. The crew had to stay in their places on the water or the boat would tip violently. A little water was all it took to send the men to their maker. 
but a few survived. One of them was Charles Hasker, a native-born Yankee who had left New York City to fight for the South. And as the Huntley went down, he lunged at the water rushing in through the forward hatch, tripping over the controls for the diving fins as he fought his way upstream through the waterfall. Hasker was more than halfway out when the hatch came down on him. The Huntley's hatch cover weighed nearly 150 pounds, and it could barely be moved in ideal circumstances. These were the exact opposite of ideal circumstances. Hasker was trapped like a seal in a shark's jaw. Water rushed past Hasker, blinding him, choking him as he involuntarily rode the submarine to the harbor's bottom. Soon the water filled the Huntley, speeding its descent. Hasker used used all his strength to push against the hatch, and he wiggled out somewhat until he thought he was free, but then the hatch clamped back down on his leg. He was still struggling when the submarine crashed onto the muddy floor of Charleston Harbor, and as the pressure inside the Hunley equalized, Hasker felt the hatch ease its hold on his leg. Working blindly in 42 feet of dark water, he pushed the hatch off his wounded leg and raggedly swam towards the light, squeezing through the black water, his bleeding leg painting the water pink behind him, and when he broke the surface, he sucked down air ravenously, the way a drunk secretly drinks behind his wife's back. A nearby ship plucked him out of the water, and because the Hunley was a secret weapon, most of the news about the dead crew had to be suppressed. The August 31st, 1863 edition of the local newspaper carried a short five-line notice. It was one line for each of the men who had died. End quote. I'm reminded of Celine from Journey to the End of Night. Quote, Look, do you remember a single name, for instance, of any soldiers killed in the Hundred Years' War? Did you ever try to find out any of them? No. You see, you never tried. As far as you're concerned, there is anonymous that is indifferent as the last atom of that paperweight or your morning bowel movement. Get it into your head. They died for nothing, for absolutely nothing. They're idiots. I say it and I'll say it again. I've proved it. The only thing that counts is life. In 10,000 years, I'll bet you this war will be utterly forgotten. I don't believe in the future, end quote. But I'll prove Celine wrong with this show. I'm never going to stop. I'm not going to quit. On Battlecast, you and I will remember all the men from all the wars We'll remember them. Celine was wrong. Only Lieutenant John Payne, Charles Hasker, and one more unknown sailor survived. The rest of the crew drowned in a writhing mass of tangled legs and arms, the blackness rushing in on them as quick as darkness when you flip the light switch in a basement closet. The water flooded into the men's lungs. They kicked their legs in convulsions. They broke their arms on the hole itself, but they kept sinking, and then the darkness turned into light, and the men stepped into the next life. The Hunley was, of course, dragged up from the bottom of the harbor and refitted for service. She still had not seen combat, and already five good men were dead. None of the men who survived would even look at the boat again. Leave it at the bottom, said Hasker. All coffins go under. Leave it down there. But there was a man who had already spent hundreds of thousands of today's dollar on the boat and would never just leave it when he could retrieve it. And this man, Horace Hunley himself, had just arrived in Charleston, and he wanted his boat back, buddy. He wrote General Beauregard and demanded it. This is his letter, quote, Sir, I am the owner of the torpedo boat, the Hunley. 
I have furnished the means entirely of the building of this boat, which was lost in an attempt to blow up a federal vessel off Mobile Harbor. I feel, therefore, a deep interest in its success. I propose that you place the boat in my hands to furnish a crew from Mobile, who are well acquainted with its management, and make the attempt to destroy a vessel of the enemy as early as possible. Your obedient servant, H.L. Hunley. Beauregard passed the death trap back to Hunley. A week later, Hunley was cleaning out the stench of death from the ship. The bodies of the first crew had become so bloated in the water that they had to be butchered and quartered in order to remove them from the boat. That's when the soldiers gave the Hunley the nickname, the Iron Coffin. But Hunley was relentless. He telegraphed for volunteers from the machine shop in Mobile. Six men from the shop heeded the call. On October 15, 1863, the men set out to demonstrate how the boat operated in order to prove that she would soon be ready for action. Horace Hunley himself led the new demonstration. A small crowd had gathered to watch, and Hunley was playing up to them. He pointed at a boat. You see that ship there, the Indian chief? We're going to dive under her and come up on the other side. You watch. But the crowd could tell something was wrong immediately after the ship went under the water. Normally it slipped under easily with little indication it had ever been there at all. But this time it went under and bubbles began to whirlpool up from where it had dived under. Something was dangerously wrong. Sixty feet under the water, Hunley and his crew fought for their lives in the total darkness of the Hunley's interior. The boat's bow, its front, was buried in the mud of the bottom. Its stern, the rear of the ship, pointed towards the air. Thousands of pounds of water pressure held the hatches down the men could not get out panic set in and Hunley worked the pump to empty the ballast tanks like a madman they had to get the Hunley floating again at this point the Hunley was almost filled with harbor water it took just a few minutes for most of the men to drown but Park and Hunley their heads above the water in the conning towers their crewmates clawing at them in the dank blackness had time to think about their fate as they slowly suffocated to death in his hand, he held a waterlogged candle next to his head. Horace Hunley's flame had flickered out, and that's how H.L. Hunley met God. The entire crew had drowned to death. The Hunley had taken eight more men, and still the Federals bombarded Charleston, and still the men reached for what hope they could. Again, the Hunley was dragged up from the bottom. It took over two weeks to salvage the boat, and when the sub-casket was opened, the men were found in their death poses. Some were still reaching for hatches. Others still clawed at each other in the crooked embraces of death. Hundley's face was blackened from suffocation. Again, the bloated bodies were cut apart and taken out piece by blubbery piece. Again, the boat was cleaned. The iron coffin was ready to sail again. But General Beauregard had other ideas. He ruled the new invention was too dangerous to warrant further testing and ordered it grounded. It already killed 13 able-bodied men. It's more dangerous to those who use it than the enemy, Beauregard had said. To everyone at Charleston, it looked like the Hunley would never sail again, but they didn't know George Dixon and William Alexander. Back at the machine shop in Mobile, they received the telegram explaining the death of Hunley and the crew. They had personally known most of the crew who drowned, but they didn't even hesitate. They left the shop and took a train to Charleston to take over the submarine program. They knew the Hunley could break the blockade, and they were willing to put their lives on the line to prove it. Dixon and Alexander sought and achieved an audience with Beauregard himself, where they argued the second sinking had just been a terrible accident. The men had simply forgotten to close the ballast tanks and the Hunley had flooded. 
For Dixon and Alexander, the men had died from a casual mistake and nothing else. The machine herself was still combat ready. Beauregard reluctantly agreed to let the men try again. He wasn't one to turn away willing soldiers. The general had the caveat that the men had to keep the sub on the surface. Dixon readily agreed to seriously consider keeping the Hundley on the surface only, and then promptly disregarded the idea when he left the general's office. He had built the submarine, and by God, he had intended to use it. It took three weeks and ten men to clean the sub, and as the sub was cleaned, Dixon and Alexander recruited a new crew. All it took was ten minutes. They gave a speech to the sailors at one boat. They had to turn away volunteers. The sailors were ready to do their part for their people. Most of the men who volunteered were young and had no families. They had nothing to lose. Dixon and Alexander personally oversaw the boat's overhaul and training regime, and the training was brutal. There's no other word for it. During this time, the crew's living quarters were seven miles away from the boat. In the early morning hours, they would walk seven miles and then train all day, smashed together in the casket-like confines of the Hunley, working in the flickering light of one candle, hand-cranking the machine for miles around the port, choking on the stultifying air, and at night, Dixon and Alexander monitored the Federal ships blockading the port. They were looking for patterns, slowly learning the ways of the enemy. Then they walked in the dark seven miles home. The muscles wrapped their bodies in a blanket of pain. During part of their journey, they were exposed to cannon fire from the blockade. Their only consolation was blessed sleep. When man can leave the pain of his body and dream of women and overladen tables at banquets surrounded by family and friends, they did this for three months. So you guys who are overweight and don't want to work out for 20 minutes, imagine walking 14 miles every day and then struggling to hand crank and steer the first effective submarine ever created. Now complain about working out. You don't have a leg to stand on. Soon Dixon and his crew were ready to try again. They would make history and be remembered forever, but they would pay a heavy price. They paid it in blood. The training was severe and exacting. During one training session, the mine the Hunley towed behind her got entangled in the boat that was towing her out and almost destroyed the towboat. General Beauregard went ballistic. The dam submersible had almost killed another crew. That was the Hunley's last day in the harbor. From then on, Beauregard banished Dixon and his crew miles away from the harbor to Sullivan's Island, where they couldn't hurt anybody except their own suicidal selves. It was in January that the ship acquired its last major change. It was outfitted with a spar, a long wooden stake onto which was attached a mine. Instead of submerging under a ship and towing the mine on a line behind her, now the Hundley would aim straight for a Union vessel and shove the mine down her throats. Then she would back away and detonate the mine with a lanyard, blowing all the Yankees back to Maine where they had come from. The crew trained for months and then the day came for the ultimate submarine test. No one knew how long they could submerge without opening the hatch and drawing in more air. One day in January, the men decided to find out. A modern historian picks up the story, quote, Dixon believed they could hold out for about 30 minutes without refreshing their air. That was how long the candles lasted before expiring, but they couldn't be sure until they tried. And after he filled the ballast tanks, Dixon maneuvered the Hunley down softly in the mud. And when the submarine settled into the muck, the men stopped talking and waited. It was daylight, but barely any of it filtered into the deadlights along the hole. Within half an hour, the candle flickered out, and then the lights went out. It was darker than your darkest dream. The men sat in silence. The deal was that they would sit still until one crewman could not take it anymore. They agreed that when the first men yelled, Up! 
They would make for the surface. In the dark, it seemed that time lost all meaning. They became beyond time. Occasionally, Dixon would ask Alexander, How is it? But other than that, silence. No one wanted to be the first man to end the test. No one wanted to seem the weakest among a crew of hardcore men. So they waited, all of them trying not to be the first to give the word. Silence, waiting, stifling air, like mowing your lawn with a burlap sack over your head, the air tangibly heavy with expiration. Then the air went beyond uncomfortable and became non-existent. Almost simultaneously, the crew yelled, Up! Up! And they went to work on the tanks and the hand crank. The sub shifted like an old dog, raising his head but refusing to move its fat bulk at the call of his master. Something was wrong. Dixon knew what it was. A single part needed adjusting. It had happened before. Working blindly in the dark, Alexander took off the pump's cap and felt seaweed choking the valve. He threw it out and rebuilt the machine from memory in the dark and began pumping like a piston. Soon the Hunley broke the surface. Everyone on the beach thought the men had died. Now the Hunley rose again like a second Lazarus. The men had sat on the bottom for two and a half hours. It was an achievement equal to the first flight of the Wright brothers, but how many of you knew about it before I told you? On February 17, 1864, the day of doom came. Dixon's time was up. He had to sink a ship or he would be sent back to Mobile by the military. There was no choice. Since it had arrived in Charleston, the Hundley had spent more time at the bottom of the ocean than patrolling the waters. The night on the 17th was not a good night at all. The moonlight was like a searchlight. It was the brightest moon they had seen in months. But time was up and they had to go out anyway. So they went. But the Federals knew they were coming. How did they know? How does anyone know anything? Somebody ran their mouth. A rat ate cheese. Somebody snitched. Two traders abandoned the boat where most of the crew for the Hunley had been recruited and went over to the Northern Fleet. The Union officer couldn't believe what the deserters told him, and he took a detailed report. They knew the length of the ship. They knew it was submersible, and they knew it was in Charleston. Hell, even Harper's Ferry Magazine had featured an article about the foreboding southern submersible. And so every Yankee captain worth half a damn had men constantly scanning the waters in search of the submarine. If they did catch a glimpse of her, what they saw would have sent a shiver down their spines. By now, the ship was more bulldog than poodle. Gone was the slickness that had graced her fresh out of the factory. Now months of immersion in salt water had popped marked her hull with small crustaceans. Streaks of rust painted her like a tiger. Mark Reagan describes the interior, quote, Inside the sub was even worse. The cramped compartment reeked of musty candle smoke and mildew, while mole had grown around the rivet heads that had held the hull together. If not routinely cleaned, the ceiling around the forward hatch would have been thick with soot from dozens of candles, end quote, and into the dankness of the iron coffin. Dixon ordered his men. It was seven o'clock. They had just hours left to live. A few miles away, it was just another boring night on the USS Housatonic. Again, the men stayed up all night looking for the mythical southern weapon that was going to break the blockade and prolong the war for another four years. Yeah, right. Everybody knew the southerners couldn't build nothing. But the captain was epileptic about watching the water, and so the sailors of the Housatonic watched it for hours on end, and nothing happened. A modern historian describes the Housatonic this way, quote, She lay at anchor just off Sullivan's Island. She was one of the newest additions to the fleet and had arrived at its station in late September 1862 and by the winter of 64 had proven herself a formidable warship. 
The Housatonic regularly bombarded the city of Charleston, denuding the city of her population. Entire fortunes were destroyed in the shelling. Its crew had captured at least two blockade runners. From land, she cut an impressive profile. Her mast towered more than 100 feet above the decks, and she carried acres of sailcloth. The sloop ran fast on steam, and since the submarine boat scare, her bunkers were kept filled with coal. She had a crew of 155 men, most of whom were snug in bed at 8 p.m. on February 17th. That night, the Housatonic's watch included six lookouts in addition to a handful of officers on deck. Even with that many men on a ship this large, they were barely within hearing distance of one another. On the starboard corner of the bow, Robert Fleming was scanning the sea at 8.40. He huddled inside his greatcoat from the 38-degree temperature. With the wind off the ocean, he felt like he was freezing. Fleming was daydreaming about a girl back home just gazing off in the general direction of Fort Sumter when he saw it. There was something moving under the water. It was 400 feet away. Fleming had spotted the thing early, but what was it? It looked like a log, but it was moving fast and with a purpose, not like a log. Remembering his debriefing on the rebel submarine, he ran to his officer and reported what he saw. But Lewis Cornthwaite, Fleming's officer, didn't want to hear fairy tales about magic rebel submersibles. Fleming, it's just a log. But sir, I saw... Fleming, it's a law. Go back to your post. But Fleming was duteous. He obeyed his commanding officer and returned to his lookout, but he had the gumption to call over another witness for a second opinion. Now both the lookouts begged Cornwaith to look again, this time with his telescope. Fine, Fleming. I'm telling you, it's just a... Oh, my God! Fleming had just seen the first combat submarine in human history, headed straight for him with stripes like a tiger, desperately trying to disintegrate his own body in flames and shrapnel. But John Crosby, the relief captain, had already spotted the Hunley and had screamed for the men in the engine room to get the Housatonic moving now. The men were working like they had guns to their heads, the sweat bee stinging their eyes as they desperately tried to shift the hulking vessel out of the Hunley's path, but the Hunley was heading right for the back of the Housatonic. The captain had ordered the Housatonic to reverse, but this only provided the Hunley with a better target. The Housatonic was reversing right into the killing field of the Confederate sub. The Federal officers ordered their men to open fire. On the deck, the crew saw a ghostly yellow glow coming from the little portholes in the submarine. The Hunley was already too close for any of the Housatonic's big guns to even aim at it. Only small arms could impede the Confederate machine, which had somehow burst from the pages of science fiction and into the lap of the skeptical Union officers. Then there was a loud tearing noise, like a tree branch cracking under the weight of too much ice in a harsh winter. At the same time, the mysterious weapon in the water had stopped moving. Then it started backing away. There it is! Look! shouted Fleming when he spotted the Hunley 60 yards away. I see it! I see it! But Fleming didn't even finish his sentence because the world had suddenly exploded around him. The mine at the tip of the Hunley spar had detonated. It had worked. Water immediately flooded into the engine room of the Housatonic. The ship lurched heavily to port and many of the crew were tossed across the deck and into the ocean. Then, 90 pounds of gunpowder detonated in the Housatonic's starboard quarter and she tremorously heaved like a woman in labor. Her hull continued to roll to port. Now there was no doubt she was going down into the blackness. There was black smoke everywhere, but there was no fire. The explosion acted like a depth charge 
no fire, just body-tearing force. Jagged pieces of wood flew like shrapnel and embedded into men's bodies, making their wounds prickle with wooden porcupine quills. But the Housatonic was in shallow waters. When she sank, her decks were just 15 feet below water. The crew simply climbed up into the rigging and waited for rescue. Very few drowned. Only five crewmen on the Housatonic were killed, but there was one less ship to blockade the south. From the coast, Confederate lookouts saw two blue lights from the ocean. It was the signal Dixon had promised to send if he was successful. They did it, the lookout muttered. They really did it. It was the last sighting of the Hunley for 136 years. But what happened to the Hunley? She disappeared after sinking the Housatonic. William Alexander, the man who had helped build the Hunley and Mobile, wasn't on the ship the night she went down. He learned about the battle a week later. He thought about what happened for weeks and concluded the men had gone too far out, over four miles out. Alexander believed the tide had ultimately captured them and taken them far out to sea. It almost happened to Alexander when he was trained with the Hunley crew. On August 8th, 2000, the world found out what happened. The Hunley was raised from the ocean. She was found more than four miles from land. But no one knows exactly how the ship went down. Maybe the men had fought the tide and decided to rest on the ocean floor but were unable to raise her up again. Maybe a leak sprung inside and drowned the men. Maybe they were too close to the blast and died shortly after the detonation. There are many theories, but the truth is no one really knows. And yes, I've seen recent research detailed by Brian Hicks. In my opinion, there is still no conclusive theory about how the men died. You don't have to send me emails. The Hunley's eight-men crew were still inside the reclaimed ship, and they were all buried with honors. You can see pictures on the website. A crowd numbering tens of thousands attended their funeral and the funeral procession. The Hunley Museum is the largest attraction in Charleston, South Carolina. Visitors come from across the globe to see and hear about the men I told you about today. The Viking poets believed in bravery more than money or fame. For them, honor was fame. And so I'll quote the poetic Edda in memory of Lieutenant George Dixon, Arnold Becker, Corporal J.F. Carlson, Frank Collins, C. Lumpkin, Miller, James A. Wicks, and Joseph Ridgeway. Cattle die and kinsmen die, and so one dies oneself. But I know one thing that never dies, the fame of a dead man's deeds. And that's it for me. We'll be back next month with the bloody history of the First Crusade. We're going from start to finish on this one, so you won't want to miss it. Now, I hate at the end of a show when the host begs, and I'm not going to beg you for anything. I want you to share this show on social media, but it doesn't matter if you don't. And I want you to give the show a five-star review wherever you listen to it, but it doesn't matter if you don't because I'm not going to stop. There's no one else with the access to materials I have. There's no one else with the will to bring them together every month for years. And so I will do this with or without you in mere meekness to be in full adoration of the people I tell you about every month. And so regardless of what anyone thinks, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.